Friend or foe is the subject of episode three of Died and Survived. And there's a good reason why. How often have sweet dreams been wished to you over your life? Yet how regularly have nightmares woken you up with a jolt in the night? Some dreams make sense due to who we see, what we hear, or where we are. But some dreams are outright crazy, nonsensical, muddled, eclectic puzzles. Decades of global research highlights that near-death experiences are no different, with 90% reporting pleasant transcendence. I, however, fall into the 10% of others. Typical. (laughs) My own NDE was far from pleasant. It was horrible. And still, almost six years on, worries me. Well, to use a horror movie term, I'm a huge horror fan, haunts me. And I'm not alone. This is Died and Survived. Friend or foe? In this episode of Died and Survived, I'm talking to three other people with NDEs. My own near-death experience arrived in my early 30s. Others had theirs in childhood or adolescence, and some were middle-aged. Whether you view the sensation of leaving your body at the end of life, only to return and live on this planet longer, as fact, fiction, or phenomenon, our age plays a critical part, actually, of how we remember the experience. The youngest person to encounter an NDE is Dave. His account is remarkable, really, of not one, nor two, but four NDEs. My first near-death experience occurred when I was uh, five years old. Um, My brother and I were playing in one of those old cars and we're just goofing off and uh, I jumped on him and he kicked me so hard I flew from one side of the car to the other side of the car and as I hit, uh, grabbed the doorknob and as I grabbed the doorknob, the car door opened and the momentum of making the turn, the door flew open and pulled me out of the car. And I went flying out of the car and landed head first onto the pavement. Oh, God. And I remember falling, you know, the sensation of falling. And then all of a sudden, I felt myself pulling out and just like trying to avoid falling. And I didn't feel any pain. But the next thing I knew, I was standing and floating, I wasn't standing, I actually was floating above um, and looking down onto this boy, this young boy. And at first I didn't recognize who this boy was, but I noticed blood was coming out of his head. And then I heard something loud, like screeching tires. And then I saw my brother running out from the car, coming up and grabbing this boy that was on the ground. I couldn't figure out who this boy was. <laughs> and, I, um, and then I started looking around and what I saw was a different environment. Um, I knew where I was, I was close to home. And there was a pasture across the way, there was a gulch, and they were still there. However, the colors were so bright. What scared me was a group of shadows, shadowy figures that started approaching me. And it made me kind of back up. And as I started backing up and fear, this fear that I had was mainly because I didn't know what that was that was approaching me. And it's the first time I encountered something like that. So I, I kind of backed up and I was afraid. And the very next thing I felt a real strong arm reach around me and grab me and uh, lifted me. So I felt movement like I was moving up. And so I looked behind me over my left shoulder and I saw this huge Hawaiian man. And he looked at me kind of like smiling and didn't say anything. And we zipped off into the air. And so um, 
for me, as I started moving with this person, um, as soon as I saw his face and he started smiling at me, it was very comforting. And I felt um, this person was, was there to help me. And uh, we zip off, uh, went flying through the air. And uh, for me, as a little kid, I remember flying like Superman. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it felt. <sighs> I could feel um, the air rushing by me and we were zipping through space. And no time in a short time, uh, I noticed that ahead of us was a light that was coming from below us. We flew right into the light and headed down. And as I, we started uh, coming down, I, I had this sensation like we were entering a cave and like a crack and a hole in the ground. And we went down until we reached the bottom. And when we reached the bottom, I started looking around, where am I? I was actually in a small room. And this room had multiple sides. It reminded me of a stop sign, like an octagon. And on each side of the wall, there was a window and a door. So you had a lot of different ways that you could see outward and I was curious and I started walking around and uh, as soon as I uh, touched the doorknob to get out, this big man grabbed me from behind and says, no, don't do that. And I looked at him, why? So he pointed at the window and says, look out there and tell me what you see. And at first, um, as I looked out, there was darkness but eventually the light from inside the room, you could see further out and it was like a large cavern. And I saw these dark shadows, the same kind of shadows that was uh, at the accident scene. They were moving around until they started coming closer. And um, as they came closer to the window and closer to the light, I could make out that uh, they were human in appearance. And they started calling my name, come, come. And some of the faces were very familiar. And uh, for me, they looked like family members, like cousins, aunties, uncles. And um, so I, I kept on trying to get out. So I want to join my family. And this big man says, no, they're not your family. They're not your family. What is the next thing you can remember from that moment, being in that room, which you said seemed like quite a long time? Well, the most vivid thing I remember was uh, as I sat in the room and I was looking out, um, all of these angry um, beings were there on the outside. And um, in our Hawaiian culture, we have a term for these types of spirits. It's called lapu lapu polohe or the mischievous spirits. And they are spirits that are uh, caught in between worlds. They haven't really transitioned beyond. And some of them are um, not aware that they're dead. Some of them are aware they're dead, but they don't want to move on. So it's a choice that they, they make for themselves to remain in this state of um, kind of like limbo. And so these are the troubled spirits that uh, get it all the time here in Hawaii. I was there for quite some time and I, I decided that I was tired and I was worn out and I fell asleep on his lap. And right when I fell asleep, I felt a jolt and um, I was jolted. And the next thing I know, I woke up and I was on a gurney being pushed into the hospital. So the actual time that I spent away from my body was very short. It was probably only about maybe five minutes. But the experience itself seemed like it was in that room for hours. Just like time stood still. Yeah, so in the meantime, you were being helped by by paramedics, by medical assistant, yeah. being rushed to the hospital. And 
I think the fact that you were five years old as well, it must have been so scary. So can you remember when you <laughs> realized you were then being pushed into hospital? Well, one of my first reactions when I woke up, I started looking around and uh, making sure I wasn't back in a small room. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, since people were there, uh, like surrounded by people, I actually thought that um, the people who were outside of the small room had broken in and was trying to take me away. <laughs> so I was scared there. <laughs> and um, it took me a few minutes to kind of realize, okay, I'm back in the real world. And, uh, and I started telling people right away uh, what you? I went through. I told uh, the nurses, my parents, and, you know, where's this room? Uh, how come I'm here? And where's the small room? And they couldn't figure out what I was trying to talk to them and describe. And what was that like for you? It was frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> it was really frustrating because uh, they're looking at me and saying, boy, you hit your head, you know, you must be delirious. <laughs> I think also it's so interesting hearing, hearing somebody talk about a near-death experience as a child because you were so innocent you know like you said yeah. you're where's the big man i just saw this big man come on whereas i think yeah. if you're an adult waking up and saying that there's probably i don't know a slightly different reaction maybe i don't know and then so then from from then on did did you carry on talking about it to your family or was it then just concentrating on um making sure you were okay physically Actually, you know, I shared my experience with uh, the nurses, the doctors, my, my parents, my relatives, and uh, mainly the adults. Uh, for the kids, I think uh, they're scared and they didn't want to listen to me. <laughs> so, um, but I remember trying to explain this, you know, my experience. I didn't know what, was, uh, what had happened to me. All I could do was describe and uh, everybody was telling me, oh, that must have been a dream or something. I said, no, this is real. This is real. This. And so it, it was uh, very frustrating because nobody believed, nobody could actually relate to uh, the experience that I had. I find it fascinating that you've had multiple. Were they all through, because your, your experience as a five-year-old, you know, you were in a critical condition, you... We're playing with your brother and, and, you know, you hit your head really bad. What were the other near-death experiences? Were they through a kind of physical injury as well? Yes. The second near-death experience that I had when I was about 35 years old was a result from coming down with double pneumonia. Oh, wow. And I was having difficult time breathing. My temperature was soaring and... I was trying to use Hawaiian remedies, but it wasn't strong enough. And so um, that's uh, one night when I went to bed, I actually left my body. And that's how my second near-death experience. Was it similar to the first one? No. No. In fact, my second near-death experience is more traditional, like um, going down a dark tunnel and reaching in the end of the tunnel and seeing this beautiful place, just beautiful colors, grass, vegetation. And I saw a long line of people and uh, that came up to the end of the tunnel. And there's a veil, kind of like a membrane that separated us. And so the people that came up and as I looked into the crowd, I knew that they were family members and I recognized their faces both sets of my grandparents were there and uh, my great-grandparents were there uncles and aunties that had passed on were there so I knew I was at the right place the best thing about my second uh, near-death experience where was seeing my pets that I had from the time I was a little kid and but they had passed on all of my pets, my dogs, my pigeons, all of the animals that I cared for and raised met me at, at the veil. 
in fact, I was more excited seeing them than my than my relatives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I think some of us can relate to that <laughs> in, in terms of animals. Yeah. Animals and or humans. They're just, you know, <laughs> trying to jump up and trying to come up on me and uh, they're trying to lick me through the, the veil. Yeah. It was just like them at a pet shop, you know. Yeah. Separated by glass. <laughs> so you had one at five, one at thirty-five. What about the other two? Yeah, the third near-death experience, I, as a classroom teacher, um, during breaks and immediately after school breaks, and our kids return to classes, the most uh, dangerous time for us because we don't know where our kids go for their break. So uh, for a lot of my, my students, they return to my classroom and they return with a lot of uh, diseases, really, you know. So several of my kids came back and they were coughing and sneezing and I thought, oh no, I'm going to get something. Sure enough, I came down with a bug and it was so, it hit me so hard that within two days of uh, becoming ill, I developed meningitis and uh, my blood sugars uh, turned septic. So I had uh, septus and my blood sugars are out of control. So dangerous, septus. Yeah. yeah. And um, I was really weak. I was rushed to the emergency room. If I didn't arrive at the hospital uh, at the time and waited around at home for about 20 to 30 minutes, if I had waited, uh, they couldn't guarantee my life, but uh, I arrived just in time. And so I was in the uh, ICU for uh, about five days. And in, on my first night there, that's when I had the near-death experience. And this near-death experience, again, seemed more like a dream. I found myself in a cemetery. And I look around and stuff. I know I'm sick. I know I'm not doing well. And a cemetery is the last place I want to see myself right now. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm I started, right. oh no, how did I get out of here? And so I started running around in a cemetery looking for a gate or looking for a fence. And the fences were way too high and I couldn't get out. So I was looking for a gate, looking for a gate. And in the process of running around like a chicken went out of head, I fell in a hole. And when I fell in a hole, I looked up and I saw a headstone with my name written on it. And I panicked. <laughs> it scrambled out of the hole. And I'm sitting there and looking at my headstone and I'm crying. Uh, as I'm crying and feeling you know, really sad for myself, um, I felt someone come up from behind me, and so I turned around, and in back of me stood a very, very handsome young man. He was well-dressed. He was dressed in a black suit, wore top hat, and had a cane. And he looked at me and said, and says, hello, David. And I looked at him, how do you know me? He says, oh, I know everybody. He says, well, you know, everybody, who are you? He says, I'm death, and I'm here for you. And I jumped up, and I said an explicit, I swore at him, and I took off running. And I could hear him laughing in her back. And um, I didn't understand why he was laughing. And I looked at there were four huge dogs, black dogs, uh, chasing after me. And I started running, and I realized that uh, only I could protect myself. So I saw this big tree, and I ran towards the tree. And just before reaching there, one of the dogs grabbed my ankle and tripped me, and I fell. And I stood up under the tree and ready to fight. And the dogs were began to attacking, and they started pulling at me. And at that moment, fear turned to something else, turned to rage. I got mad. You know, these dogs are biting me and 
trapping me and stuff like that. And I'm not ready to give up. And as soon as I felt this rage, and I started looking at my hands, my hands changed and morphed. It grew long fingernails, turned large hands, and muscular. And I'm looking at my arms, they're muscular and hairy. And as I looked at my feet, it started growing, growing, growing. And I look at my hands again, and um, I could feel things in my mouth, and I realized I had uh, morphed into a giant werewolf. And I stood there, and I was breathing. And so the dogs just jumped at me, and one of them I grabbed and bit off his head and spit it out like watermelon seed. And another one was uh, biting at my leg, and I looked at him and I stomped him with my other foot and went splat like a tomato. And the third one and stuff, I just smacked really hard and it kind of like burst. And the fourth one, seeing all of the destruction that I was doing with, uh, with the rest of the dogs, he turned tail and ran away. He didn't want to deal with me. So I'm standing there, a full-go-morph werewolf, feeling powerful and mean and angry. And I look at that and says, come on, I take you on now. And so he just backed off and he clapped his hand. And he says, congratulations. And I look at him, congratulations for what? says, look like you have a reason to live. And right when he said that, I, I realized he was right. I did have a reason to live. Because right before getting sick, this is a turning point in my life. Uh, I was married to someone that um, I didn't love. And uh, I, I was in a union that was... Uh, this person was really afraid of a lot of the skills that I was displaying. I mean, I couldn't even talk about my dreams to her. I couldn't even express uh, the things that I was seeing in our own home. She'd freak out. And so the match wasn't right. All of the best changes that occurred to me uh, in this phase of my life only occurred after I got married to my present wife. And so the environment, and um, it's just like, you know, planting a garden. Mm. You have to have the right mixture of soil. You have to add the right temperature. You have to have the right uh, type of soil and the seeds to grow. Mm. And uh, my other relationships didn't provide that. Mm. Uh, the only thing that was growing was weeds in the garden. Mm. <laughs> Hmm. I and many people listening could probably relate because it just <laughs> it strikes me that it wasn't even, again, I'm just a person meeting you on the outside, but it just make, I think it makes everybody think when we hear stories, like experiences like your own, when we share and then we can relate to them, I think, in so many ways. And it makes me think to me that it wasn't even just about being developing, it was just being you. You know, you you have to be able to be you in any form of relationship. So the fourth one, was that also a transformative time of change? Yeah, it occurred in 2010 when I had a open heart surgery and triple bypass. Wow. And in order to... You've been through a lot, in, Dave. Yeah, in order mm. to uh, do that, they had to stop my stop my heart. So for... For a while, I was clinically dead. When uh, I was in the operating room, the last thing I remember was the anesthesiologist saying, okay, can you count back from 100 to 1? And I went, 100, and that was it. <laughs> I was gone. And the very next thing I felt was, you know, I was somewhere in darkness. And... Uh, my consciousness was out there just in the dark. And I suddenly felt jolted. Like, uh, 
like how sometimes when you're sleeping and something strange happens and you feel like you're falling. Yeah, I get that. And then it kind yeah, of just makes it, you jump, felt, yeah. <laughs> that's how it felt to me. So I jumped up and poof. I found myself floating up in the air towards the ceiling and looking down and wondering, oh, where am I? And there was bright lights and there was this man covered in blue and uh, there were people running around this person and they were acting pretty excited. And um, I saw doctors with these pedals and they were shocking this man. And the body was going up and up and up. And I'm looking at this and I go uh, to myself, I say, oh, poor thing, this man. <laughs> I didn't realize it was me <laughs> I was looking at. And so finally, um, you know, the doctors kept on working on him, working on him, and I'm thinking, oh, why am I seeing this? Am I dreaming this? And so I came around um, to the head of this person, and when I looked, I realized that was me. I could see my face, saw the tubes running in all over there, and uh, I looked at my chest, my chest was cracked open and they were putting in these probes to try and start my uh, start my heart up. And I realized they were having problems. And so um, I got scared. Yeah, and this surprised. time I was frightened over the situation, realizing I was in bad shape. And again, right when I felt scared, this large head came up I came up from behind me and grabbed me and hugged me and took me through the roof and uh, took me through the roof of the uh, operating room and we ended up floating floating above the hospital and I looked back and there's that man from my first near-death experience the same kupuna that came and rescued me and went zipping through the air same thing like the first, uh, the first time, and went right back to that small, surrounded by glass uh, and doors. And so he took me there, and I was there for a much, much longer time. And that's when I learned the next meaning of my name and stuff. And, uh, he said, now I'm getting to understand my name better and displaying the talents and um, the gods, plural, <laughs> recognize me as an equal. And uh, what I pray for and what I want to manifest, do it. So uh, that's the lesson that I learned from there. And uh, I have to have, in order to make things work, um, I had to develop more confidence in myself. And in fact, uh, during that time, I, my confidence wasn't quite there. But he told me, once I get to the point where um, I stop hoping and I stop wishing and uh, turn that into knowing, that's when I'll be able to function fully as a person that I'm intended to be. So that's the main message. Another person heavily affected by childhood trauma is Betty. And just as Dave suffered a roadside trauma, harm also hit her in adolescence. I was 15 years old. I worked, I, I had been raised around horses and riding horses and, um, I worked for a, a thoroughbred farm and I wrote up a lot of the, I don't know if you have any, any frame of reference for this, but the, the, the rougher horses, you know, I just needed riding out. One morning I, I took a horse up that had actually come back from the track that was, they were having a lot of issues with. You know, it just, it just takes a lot of riding with some of them. And I got thrown in the road. And this is, you know, we're out in the country. 
way away from anyone else. Um, it's a gravel road, gravel and clay. I don't know how long I was out. I just, I know I, I became very aware of like being part of everything. I could see everything almost like I was watching a film, kind of, of everything I had done that day. I wasn't up close. I was watching this as, as a spectator almost, you know, mm. not first person. Um, even saddling the horse. And I was about a mile from the house or so where I got thrown. And I was aware that I was laying in the road. I wasn't upset about it. I was very much separate from my body. You know, I, I watched the horse go, it was about two miles back around to the house. I watched him go all the way back. Um, I, I saw the people you know, there at the at the uh, barn lot, catch him and um, check him over. I was really, I, w I was glad he got home. <laughs> and um, some people started out looking for me, and I saw I saw them find me. I saw the ambulance come. And, you know, I, I wasn't distressed with this at all. It, it just, I, I was very calm and very serene where I was at. Um, I just, I seemed to be part of everything, you know, the, the grass, the wind, the sun. And um, I saw where they called my parents who lived several miles from here from this place um, in the same way I was just observing and I was taken to the hospital and you know it, it wasn't upsetting it was very peaceful it's, I seemed to understand things I, I wasn't in pain in terms of you said uh you, you seem to understand things, just could you mind expanding on that, understand things in the context of your own life or your surroundings? I suppose my, my surroundings, I was just, I was part of everything. Everything is part of everything else. You know, every, all the living are part of each other. They're interconnected. I understood that very well. It wasn't upsetting at all. It was very, very peaceful. Do you find it upsetting talking about it now? How does it make you feel? It's a little bit more difficult. You know, it's not something I have, and until I even submitted my experience to NDERF, I have not talked about it for a very, very long time. And I've not explored how it affected me. I um, I got sent back. I could see what, you know, things that were being done at the hospital with me. And I had a, a severe head injury and a broken neck. And um, there was I felt a lot of pain whenever I seemed to go back with my body that I had not been feeling. And um, I was having some trouble with, in, in surgery, um, I, I guess my vital signs were, were bad. And I went back to the place in the road and I, I was, my consciousness was very definitely separate 
from my body. You know, and I know there, it, it was, I understood you. It was two separate things. I have a body, but it's not me. And uh, I was, I, I started, I seem to be walking down the road away from, farther away from the house, from this place that the accident had happened. And I was joined by a being that I knew in life who had been passed sometime before very traumatically. And she was talking with me and she wasn't, she was a horse in life. She was a horse. And um, as we walked, her condition became better because it, this sounds terrible, but and this is, this is kind of difficult, you know, emotionally. It's not something I've I've fully been able to ever process through, and just sharing it has helped. But um, as we walked, her her condition improved. She when she first appeared with me on this road, she looked as if she would have for the length of time she had been dead. And she smelled terrible. And um, as we walked and she was talking with me, she was improving you know, towards the condition she had been in life. And the, the road ahead of us seemed to change as she was explaining to me that, you know, things that I had felt responsible for in life weren't my responsibility. I wasn't guilty. I hadn't done anything wrong. Um, you know, I, I was forgiven for things that there was no forgiveness needed for. You know, I needed, it was something I needed to, to deal with. And the, the surroundings start becoming very dark and the landscape begins to change. Um, instead of being summer and warm and sunny as it had been, I didn't even recognize where we were. And it was, it was very dark. You know, the grass disappeared. The sky was very dark. It was very desolate ahead of us. And I wanted to stay there with her. You know, it, it had been very traumatic for me with her death. She had been mine. She had been my horse in life. And we came to a person sitting at a crossroads but not not a crossroads it was like a fork in the road the road we were on split and it went into this endless very um dark landscape no grass no trees but you could see a very long ways, I'll put it that way. And there was a, a being there. It seemed like a lady to me, but she was very ageless. She was ancient, but not. I, I, I still don't have the, the best words to describe her. And I didn't understand exactly why, but I was not allowed to go any further. I wasn't allowed to pass through. The horse did. And you know, she wasn't, 
the the person, the being there, told me I was. It was not time for me. I had things to do, and I had things I needed to say. And I wanted to go. I, even though this the landscape had changed, I I wanted to go. I still I felt very very at peace, very serene. And I I wanted to go with my friend. And. Uh, That wasn't, it wasn't allowed. I began walking back and I found myself um, back with my body very shortly. I'm not sure how that transition happened. And I seemed to be sleeping again. I wasn't separate from my body anymore. And um, I, when I was able, you know, which was, it was some days later, I asked, I, I told what I had heard of conversations that happened while I was away from my body. They were verified. What I had heard and what I had seen had happened in the way that I had perceived them to happen. And as strange as that seemed to be for some people, it was validating to me. Mm. What I experienced was real. What was the reaction like from the people when you told them the conversations that you could hear? They seemed shocked. Mm. They just they were able to verify what I was saying is true. And nobody really wanted to talk about it, mm. which was you know, it kind of made me feel I might guess fifteen years old. I felt very much that something had happened that made me very different from everyone else. Mm. They had no no reference point to understand what I was talking about or what I experienced. And it was, you know, it wasn't something anyone seemed to really want to talk about. And I certainly didn't have the capacity to do so. I had uh, a lot of physical issues for quite some time and issues with my vision and memory. But the experience I had remained extraordinarily acute, and it does even now, all these years later. Yeah, it can be very isolating when you've experienced something like that, and it's almost like who else has experienced that? Who can you relate to? Well, I... It was too big for me to understand. And I've at times tried to, in my own mind, work through it a little bit. And I really couldn't because it's like it's, it was too big to fit into the parameters of my life. And it was, it was too intense of an experience to reconcile with living here. The after effects for those of us who have experienced an NDE will be discussed in greater length. Betty's teenage encounter with near death has stayed with her and others. Let's meet Annie. She was 17 and reeling from an abusive mother and sister when she fell ill in the early 1980s. We met over coffee to discuss the remarkable savior in her near death encounter. Nice to meet you. I'm Charlie. Hello. So one day, I get knocked down. I'll never forget this. I get a goose egg on the back of my head and a teeny tiny scratch on my finger. Well, nothing, not, not a big deal. 
Five days later, my hand is swollen, and I have a red line running up my arm. And my mother, who'd been a nurse for about 20 years, called the hospital and said, what are the five symptoms of blood poisoning? And I had all of them. I had a high fever. I had, sh I had everything. Oh, my God. So we went to the hospital, and I still have a scar on my hand. It's a little bitty dot right there. Oh, yep. yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's That's like... where they shoved the needle in, tiny, and it came tiny, out. tiny, tiny. You could, it's just like a pinprick. Yeah, and they, it, the needle came out between my ring and middle finger. Oh, my God. And they deadened my whole hand, and then they... They, this is all local anesthetic. I was never put completely under the drugs in my system like that. Local anesthetic. And then a doctor and a nurse drained my arm of all the poison. So then they admitted me, and I got put in my hospital. Now, this is summer. This is June. So I had on flip-flops, and this bugs me to this day. <laughs> I cannot I stand on part. I can't stand <laughs> dirty feet. <laughs> I can't. My feet were black, right? Summers, you're running around the dirt and you're running around the street and everything like that. And uh, um, they had me in a wheelchair, so they wheeled me up to x-ray. And my hand is now wound and bound up like a baseball glove. And the woman told me to stand up, so I stood up. And I had my hand up by my heart, so they told me to keep my hand up. Because they were checking to see if the bone was infected. And then she <laughs> told me to put my hand down, and I went down like a ton of bricks. I passed out an x-ray. She apparently caught me because I woke up half on the wheelchair and half off. So then um, they get the x-ray done, and they go to take me into my room. And this is when I notice my feet are black. I mean, just filthy black. And they want to put me in this nice, clean bed with these nice white sheets. So I put my feet down on the floor, and it was ice cold. I mean, just shockingly ice cold on the floor. So they get me into the bed. It's like 10 o'clock at night now. And she's, they're all saying goodbye to me. My mother was there and the nurse was there. And then they, you know, they turn the lights off and we'll see in the morning kind of thing. And I'm laying in the bed. I'm wide awake, right? And I feel myself starting to pass out again. I'm like, uh, <laughs> I'm like I don't want to do that again. So I rolled onto my left side. You were on your own at this point. Yeah. Well. You were quite you, long. you were young. I was 17. Yeah, 17 is. Yeah. So I rolled onto the side of the bed, and I grabbed the handrail because I felt myself passing out like an x-ray again, and I didn't want to, and I'm struggling against passing out, and I thought I had won. I thought I was still awake, so I rolled onto my back. I look up, and I'm looking through my closed eyelids, and I'm like... Yeah, you're blinking. You're like, am I seeing this? That is nuts. So I noticed that my eyelids are still shut, but I can see through them. It was very bizarre. So I decided to sit up. So I sat up, and as I passed through my body, it was like passing through a warm wall of jello. It was exactly how it felt. It's the only way I can describe it. It wasn't soft or fuzzy or wet. It was just warm wall of jello. It was firm like jello, right. but it was warm. And so I, I sat up. I'm trying to imagine. And I'm like. thinking, okay. So I, did, I pull my legs off the side of the bed and I stand up. And the first thing I notice is that the, I can't feel the floor if it's cold or hot. Because it had been shockingly cold going into the bed. But now I couldn't tell. Now that that was weird. So I know my body's on the bed behind me, but I'm not scared of it. And I liken this to how you get out of your car. Okay, it's in the driveway. You have your keys in your hand. You're headed for the house. You don't give it another thought. It's just like that. It's just like getting out of your car. So I'm not afraid of it or anything. And then the room started to change. Now, I'm just standing there. I'm by the bed. I haven't taken a step. And all this stuff starts to happen. The drape that was comes down from the ceiling by your bed was now on a rack. And it was solid white. And it was on a rack like you see in the old movies. And then the room started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then across the room, an, a yellow iron lung showed up. And then the window that was on the wall got even bigger. A yellow iron lung. An iron lung showed up right. in the room. And then there was the bathroom was on the right-hand side of the wall. This man comes walking out of the bathroom and he walks ahead of me and I'm like, okay and he had on one of those hospital gowns right. i had no idea who he was but i couldn't see like the back side of him and then everything goes black 
and I mean pitch black, right? And it's so black that I tell people, if you want to know how dark it is, um, and I later find out this is called the void, is if you were to put on like one of those sleep masks mm. and then go into a walk-in closet and shut off the light and shut the door, that's, I mean, it's like super, super pitch, black. Pitch, it's pitch dark, black. Yeah. So I'm standing there and it's completely dark and I'm like, okay. And the first thing I thought to do was put my hand before my face to see if I could see my hand, which I couldn't. And there's nothing in there. I can't hear any sounds. I'm not, you know, I'm like, I'm just literally, it was like standing there waiting for a bus, like your mom coming to get you from school and you're just hanging out. And there's- Yeah, so there was, what did you feel at that point? Just just like I was like just hanging out, yeah. like waiting for a bus. Yeah. It's hard to, it's just, yeah. I don't know. Just hanging out, just waiting. And I wasn't afraid at any point. Nothing was scary. I was just like, okay, you know, just, and that lasted for maybe half a minute just standing around. And while I'm looking at that, this angel shows up, this guy, okay? He didn't walk in. At that minute, do you think it was an angel or do you just think it's some guy? I didn't know. At that moment, yeah. It just, he was just there. Yeah. And he was really, really good looking. Sandy blonde hair, 6'2", 6'3", easy. He had on a red flannel shirt, and I can see the little white t-shirt underneath it. And he had on 501 button fly blue jeans, and he had black Like Levi, 501, wow. He had red, this is what he was wearing, a red flannel shirt with a white inner shirt beneath it. And then he had the 501 button fly jeans and black Converse high top shoes. I'm a 17 year old girl. This is a huge fashion faux pas, okay? Because everybody's wearing white sneakers. And I'm thinking in my head, really? Did you really? White, con you know, I'm like, black sneakers and blue jeans? He gets a smirk on his face and he said, do you want to stay or do you want to go? And in that moment, the whole feel of the whole thing changed. And I instantly knew I had all the time in the world to make my decision. And I'm playing it over in my head because I don't know, I have no religious background. I don't know where I'm at. I don't know who I'm talking to. I don't know what's going on. So I'm playing in my head, going like, stay. Do you want to stay? Do you want to go? Do you want to go? Do you want to stay? Because I'm just, you know, kind of flipping around my head. And then this woman shows up. And she was blonde, and she had on a light yellow dress with little blue flowers, she had a little collar on it. She reminded me of the mom in the 1970s show, that 70s show, the mom, that's what she reminded me of. And uh, so she, she goes, she was just quiet for a minute, because when I was thinking about do I want to stay or do I want to go, I got concerned about my mother being angry with me if I stayed, because she got angry at me about everything, right? So she's going to be mad at me about this. And I worried that I was going to miss her too much because she's my primary caregiver, you know. And so I'm having this little battle. I mean, I'm, I'm like afraid of her, but I also worry that I'm going to miss her. And I'm, I'm not telling them the truth. I'm like trying to hide it because I'm saying, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm worried I'm going to miss her too much. But in mixed in that is I'm afraid of her too. Yeah. And then this woman angel of the consequences of making that choice. Right. Yeah. So the lady angel says to me, you don't have to worry about that. Your relationship with your mother is going to change later on. You don't have to worry about that. And the second she said that, I didn't worry about it anymore. In that moment, I see my mother in her living room, in that living room of our house. She's on the phone with the man that I consider my dad. He's an uncle. He bought me a pony when I was 11. His abuse was so bad, he got me a pony so that I would be at the stables where she couldn't get me, right. okay? So he's on the phone and he's telling her I had coded and that they were trying to bring me back. And I felt all of her fear. I felt um, her anxiety, her upset that I was even in this situation in the first place, all, all sorts of things. And then I just didn't worry about that being part of my decision. And then that whole thing just closed off. And I'm like, okay. So then um, at that point, there was, it's hard to explain. There's like this division of yourself, okay? There's a part of you that's still there, right? 
and then there's you that's on this journey on this earth and that's they were having this conversation this female angel and this other part of me and i'm still deciding if i want to go back or not and the other part of me said you still have to have your son now so I'm the, this other part of you was like what did you feel like it was somebody watching you this like, is you this is like your identical yeah. twin this is yourself your your bigger part of your soul this seemed bigger than me more ancient than me i i have a such a hard time explaining this um it's like there's two of you and she's the control tower and you're the plane the reason why i ask is because i had a conversation with two sides of myself exactly i felt like it, I was arguing within myself. Exactly. So I just wondered what that, yeah. Yeah, she says you still have to have your son. I'm 17, I have no plans for kids, okay? Absolutely none. But I also knew in that moment that I was gonna be in my 30s when I had him. This was way off in the future. No information about the dad, no information about anything else, just you still have to have your son. So I'm mulling that over. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> it must have been a bit like, you know. It was a bizarre moment. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, the woman angel said to me, because she very much is very, very powerful. And this is all telepathic. There's, we're not having a conversation with her here. This is all telepathic. And she very much did not want me to go back to Earth. And we're like on this grassy area. There's a big white farmhouse. And there's a sheet that goes on forever. I mean, this thing went off into infinity, right? I couldn't see the other end of it. And she had about 80 people that I couldn't see and didn't know. I could see like their outlines. I could see that they were there. I had no idea who they were. At this point in my life, no one had died yet. My grandparents are still alive. My parents are still alive. All my friends. I didn't know anybody who had passed away. So I don't know who these people are, but they're all getting ready to, to celebrate and greet me. And I'm like, okay. And I know, even though she didn't say anything, but I know that if I crossed that barrier, if I went under that sheet, or there was a gap between her and the sheet, if I went through there, I was staying. And the thing that impressed me the most was, I have to go back and have my son. That's super important for some reason, I don't know, but I have to go back and have my son. And in that second, I get slammed back into my body. I mean, boom, back in my body. And I'm like, and the thing that I noticed is that it was a little colder than when I had left. So I don't know how long I was gone. At that point, I hear the nurse say, welcome back. And I looked down at the end of the bed. When I first got back in my body, I was worried I was gonna be paralyzed because I'd been gone too long. And so I'm doing a systems check. <laughs> I'm shifting my hips and moving my spine. You know, I'm like, okay, I'm, everything's working. I open my eyes. I see my dad at the end of the bed. And this is a man who survived World, you know, World War II and Pearl Harbor. He was in Pearl Harbor. Wow. He's seen what dead looks like. He had a look on his face I wouldn't wish on any parent. But he, he and I had this nonverbal communication that he knew I was dead. And I can't say anything. And I'm just, and then the nurse said, He'll be okay. <laughs> and then she started taking the stickers off me. Oh my gosh. So he was the one that found you. Yeah. It's fascinating to think that you're going through this whole experience, yet your dad stood there watching your he had physical the, body being revi revived almost. Yeah. He had hold of my foot. And when I first woke up, I didn't feel him holding my foot. Right. And even when I looked at him and I could see he was holding my foot, I couldn't feel him holding my foot. So I don't know if like, because you're back in your body and you're blinking and you're moving and you're, I couldn't speak. I couldn't do anything. Because you had just gone through this experience. I'd just been talking to these people not three seconds ago. I know all this stuff now and I have no way to communicate it. An interesting thread is becoming clear. Domestic disharmony, disillusionment, low self-esteem, and also, well, if relevant or not, a detachment from religious belief. I know you talked a bit about some of the other people that you've experienced about empathetic meaning behind any death experiences and the context of them having almost like, I, I always joke with my friends that I've got like a second life. And even when it was my birthday afterwards, we did it as my first birthday. And um, 
which is, you know, great fun and a really great way to actually, for me, it helped me mark my what I'd gone through. And interestingly, yeah. the other thing I then did is on the back of my leg, the whole of my calf has um, a really intricate shading and drawing of an angel. And the angel's like powerful and like head is tipping upwards and their wings aren't upright but kind of wrapped around them in protection and um, it was an image that I just had ever since I came out of hospital is there like a commonality across the board or is this is it very unique to individuals have you have you heard this kind of transformation before that you know we're Mm -hmm. discussing yes definitely and yeah absolutely it is very typical for people who've had near-death experiences. And and I want to say something for listeners that what you went through the two weeks is what we call a close brush with death. That's where you're physically close to death or actually having like cardiac arrest, being resuscitated and all that. The experience you had of being with this dark mass and all of that stuff, that's the near-death experience. Uh, okay. And the reason that we make that distinction is that about 90% of people who survive the kind of thing that you did, it can seem like exactly the same physical circumstances. 90% of people come back from that and don't remember anything unusual, you know, like your near-death experience. But about 10% do remember a near-death experience. So the near-death experience is the experience of your consciousness functioning apart from your physical body, either looking down on the physical scene and or being in a transmaterial domain, meaning a domain beyond the material world, communicating with entities not of the material world. No, I don't. I remember being out of my physical body when I had the experience and I remember like being at one side of the room, but I wasn't like, looking down on my body. So your experience itself is very much in line with um, with other NDEs that I've heard about. Uh, communicating with a, um, a transmaterial being is very common. Um, when, when you were communicating with the dark mass, like how would you describe the nature of the communication? Were you talking like the way we're talking or was it something else. I was talking, but it, not my lips were moving. It just, I was just saying it through my, oh my like gosh. You were, like you were expressing your thoughts, yeah. your thought, and then you were receiving the thoughts of. Yeah. Cause I don't feel like it talked to me physically. I yeah. Mean, right. Like, and I'm not, I, you know, thinking about it now, I'm not even sure I, cause I definitely put, I was like, no, but it was also like an energy as well. And I felt like mm-hmm. I was screaming no, but it wasn't like I was going, no. It was like, yeah, yeah. no in my own head type yeah, yeah, thing. And yeah. it was more of a, yeah. so no, I felt like it was less of a physical conversation. Right, huh, right. I didn't think and so the way some near-death experiencers have worded it is to, they said that the communication was like mind to mind. And so it didn't, and now that doesn't mean it never involves a sense of, like language or something like that. Some a few in a few cases, a very small minority of cases, people will say, but the great majority of people say that communication is mind to mind. Yeah. So that again, another aspect of your experience, it's very much like um, what I've heard others. And then seeing a possible scene from the future, like your uh, funeral and how your mother would react, that kind of thing is. Typical. So, in a, another way of saying it is, nothing you said describing your near-death experience itself surprised me, because it is similar to what other people have said. Now that said, I've never heard anyone have exactly the same near-death experience as you. While many NDEs follow similar traits, no two will ever be identical. Each is truly unique to us as individuals, almost like a fingerprint of experience that we carry every day. Often invisible to others, but a constant for us. However public or private we are with sharing our past encounters with family, friends, or the wider world. 
In episode four, we investigate the outer world's response, specifically the academics and scientists who have dived deeper than most in hope of conclusive proof of life after life. This is next on Died and Survived. Fact is that many people don't want there to be an afterlife. You know, it's interesting for whatever reason. Yeah, I wonder what the psychology of that is. Like, why would well, you want that? Well, it's probably different. Some of them say, "Well, they're afraid it might be a hellish thing," or that. Some of them say, "My religion says that, you know, you go into an obtundation till the end of time," or some people just say it's nonsense, right? And because they say, well, what are you talking about in the first place? Life after death. Died and Survived is hosted and produced by me, Charlie Webster, alongside my dear friend, Paul Woods-Turley, with research and production support from Jill Hoffman and Kyle Epler. Recording by Stephen Sletton, edited and sound designed by Aaron Florence. Lionsgate Sound, engineered by Pilgrim Media Group.